This is I Spy, the show from foreign policy where spies tell their stories. Thirty-five feet is a long way to drop from a helicopter to the water. So I stood there in the door. I had my gear on. I had the C4 strapped to under my shirt, on my waist, wrapped around with ace bandage. I had a my backup weapon in my ankle. And I jumped out, uh, hit the water. I bobbed immediately to the surface. I only went down maybe three or four feet below the surface from the momentum. Swam over to the gear that I needed to retrieve and brought it to the boat. From Foreign Policy, welcome to a new season of I Spy. As usual, on each episode, we get one former intelligence operative to tell the story of one operation. I'm Margot Martindale. We're starting this season with CIA officer Rick Prado, who fled Castro's Cuba and eventually settled in Florida. Prado would go on to serve in the U.S. Air Force and do some contract work for the CIA. One day in 1980, the agency called and offered him a long-term assignment. Two weeks later, he was in Central America. Prado would spend the next four years training the Contras, that controversial group that was trying to overthrow the Sandinista government in neighboring Nicaragua. The Reagan administration at the time considered the Sandinistas agents of the Soviet Union. His story focuses on one particular attack the Contras carried out against a Nicaraguan port in the city of Puerto Cabezas. Here's Prado. When I arrived in Honduras and I met my boss for the first time, of course, I'm a blank slate. All I know is that I'm here to support the Contras and that they would tell me what I needed to do when I got to Tegu. So my first briefing with Colonel Ray, I said, so boss, what is it that you want from me? And he says, first, I want you to go down there and win them over. Second, I want you to make them depend on you. And that means you're going to have to train them. You're going to have to be bringing in the supplies that they need every time you go out there, making yourself essential. Now, you got to understand that we had five people on this program on the ground, but I was the only American allowed in the camps. And the reason for that was that I could pass for something other than a white, you know, gringo. And I had the language. But, you know, I never felt unprepared. I was very confident, probably bordering on cocky, going in there. Literally a week after being in Tegucigalpa, I went to my first trip to the camps. And the first camp that I went to, when I got there, my jaw dropped. I went going like, man, these people are living out here. You're talking there was eight inches of mud just about everywhere because it was rainy season. You had these lean-to tents and hammocks and makeshift little wooden houses with thatched roofs. And at the beginning, we didn't have helicopter support. And uh, we literally had to go on in trucks through really rough terrain. I mean, you know, you get off dirt roads and you're in, you know, literally going on riverbeds or crossing rivers and, and trails to get to some of these camps because obviously the camps have to be in secluded areas and areas you could fortify. So there was high grounds, there was rivers, there were things that needed to be forged. So that made for a very inefficient transport for me because, you know, I would leave on Monday mornings, four o'clock in the morning, and I wouldn't come back until either Friday night or Saturday morning back to Tegucigalpa. And I would try to hit two camps 
every time I went out. Well, that was almost impossible at first, trying to do this on the road. So subsequently, we were giving the helicopters. We were doing a lot of raids and ambushes and stuff like that, and our headquarters came in with a requirement saying, it's time that we do something that really gets the Sandinistas' attention. We need to have something that will hurt them beyond the scrimmages that our guys were doing at the time. So um, I had run into some mosquito divers, lobster divers actually, and they were fit guys. So, And I knew about Puerto Cabezas because at the time Puerto Cabezas was the umbilical cord to Cuba bringing in all the Soviet material to Central America, not only to the Sandinistas, but that was further being exported to Salvador and Guatemala and, and all the other places that they were fomenting problems back then. So I came up with the idea. I said, look, you know, I, I'm a military diver. I have these guys here. They're, they're very fit. They say they're good divers. I can test them, and if they pass, you know, I can teach them compass swims and all the details of combat divers. And uh, we go in there and we blow up Puerto Cabezas Pier with whatever you give me to blow it up with. So they came back, our headquarters came back and um, said, absolutely love this idea. By that time, I already had tested my guys because I wasn't waiting, and the four that made it were top. And they said, we are going to prepare a special device for you guys. It's 80 pounds of explosives. You know, the Mosquito are the Native Americans of Central America, especially that area on the east coast of Nicaragua and a little bit in Honduras. They are also mixed a lot with black slaves that washed ashore. And no matter who was in power, whether it was Somoza or now the Sandinistas, they wanted autonomy. And of course, the Nicaraguans won't give them autonomy because all the gold mines are in the Mosquito area. So they don't want to give that up. And the Mosquito, like I said, they are natural rangers. I mean, these guys, all they do is hunt, fish. That's their life. They know tracking. They know all these stuff. So it was very easy to train them and pound per pound, they were just as good as anybody else in the field. Most importantly, they were divers already. These are guys that I knew and from talking to them and training them on everything else. So they, I wasn't starting from scratch. There's a lot of things you could teach people on land, but unless you're used to working underwater, especially for something this hairy, you got to have some miles on you. And these guys were seasoned divers. The other part of it is Puerto Cabeza is, is in the Mosquitia. It is in the area where these guys live. So, uh... God forbid on the way back, we, you know, we have to uh, dock ashore somewhere. At least we would have some kind of uh, rescue capability. I spent three and a half weeks training my guys on an island about 70 miles from the shore there. And it used to be, the main island used to be a shrimping company. The ships would come in and dump the shrimp there and they would process it. It was knocked down by a hurricane. It was a three-story building. The top floor was gone but they had fresh water and reefs nearby and very, very private. So uh, we uh, taught them how to do compass swims. It's called an attack board. It's like a little piece of wood board that usually has a, a compass on it. And sometimes it has a depth gauge in it so that you could be looking, you know, that you're maintaining the depth that you want and you're going in the direction that you, uh, you shot from the beginning. There's, you know, idiosyncrasies of military diving that you have to know where the hell you're going with with uh, some degree of accuracy and a lot of physical, you know, stamina stuff. I PT'd them in the morning and PT'd them in the afternoon. They were tough as nails and uh, I grew a, a very, uh, to be very fond of them uh, because the word no didn't exist for them. They really were willing to take point on things. And then we started doing, you know, actual practicing of how do you tie this 80 pound 
device. How do you tow it over there? Because you got to swim it. So uh, the training was intense. The living conditions were very primitive. Like I said, this was an abandoned place. Our showers came from the rainwater. Fresh water was available, and we catch our own fish. But once a week, we had a helicopter come in that would bring a couple of steaks, uh, you know, some rice and beans and the perishable stuff. You know, every special unit has a name or a mascot or a moniker that they go by. So I told the guys, I said, you know, you guys are lean, mean, with big teeth. You remind me of barracudas. And they laughed and I said, that's going to be our name. So we named them the Barracudas. One of the, uh, the exciting moments in preparation during the training was we were in a deserted area of the ocean, and there's a pier. This is up in the uh, northern part of Honduras. And um, I was swimming the 80-pound device to get it to float correctly. It's a torpedo-looking thing. It's long. It looked like a, almost like a blimp, probably about four feet, five feet long. The challenge was getting it to float neutral. You don't want it floating up, and now you're, you're discovered, you're being pulled, and you definitely don't want it dragging either because you know, it's going to kick your butt uh, trying to swim that stuff in. It's very physical, dragging something behind you. Imagine, you know, you're kicking, and you're the guy towing this thing. It's, it's a workout. And I was swimming this thing back, and it was killing me, so I would have to come back. It's dragging. Now it's floating and all this. And finally, we get it right. And I wasn't on tanks. I was on Mass Vincent Snorkel. And... Um, all of a sudden, coming in, I had a man of war stuck between my mask and my snorkel, literally on top of my uh, upper lip, and that got my attention. <laughs> that was painful. Obviously, I didn't panic because I've been diving since I was 15. So, it's a form of jellyfish. It's like the uh, the jellyfish on steroids. They're big and their stingers are very, very strong. The chemical that they emit is really, really strong. And there's people that actually drown. They'll swim into a, to a bed of these things, and they get stung five or six times, and it hurts. And then there's actually an inflammation and intoxication kind of aspect to it. You know, you can get pretty uh, blown up because of it. So it is dangerous. Uh, we try to avoid them. But, again, we were in the dark, so um, I got hit with that. So I took that crap off, and the next day looked like I, you know, I had had a, a bad lip job. We laugh at it now, but back then it sucked. Finally, we got our green light. It was time with weather and make sure that the weather was fine and that we had no moon. We wanted to infiltrate. So what we did was the device was already on a Honduran PT boat that was going to meet us on the other side of the lagoon that surrounds Puerto Limpira. So we were coming out of the lagoon and we we're on a, I guess it's about a 14-foot hollowed-out canoe, where they call them a panga, that has a 15, 20 horsepower kicker engine in the back. And the mosquitoes were there with all their dive gear and everything else. All the lethal stuff was, uh, you know, weapons and, and stuff like that were in, on the boat already. And as we're sailing out of the lagoon, as soon as we got within about 50 yards of the ocean, the currents coming in from the ocean to the lagoon at that time literally forced the boat to buck up. And I was a pretty beefy guy back then, and I'm sitting there on the left side, and all of a sudden, the engine comes off the transom in the back, and it's going in the water. So I reached over, grabbed it, and manhandled it back on the boat. But when I did, I fell back 
I had a small rucksack on. I fell backwards into the water, and there was a piece of metal on the side of the boat, and it tore my right arm. So that was a bad omen for me. I didn't let the rest of the guys worry about it, but I'm going like, boy, I hope this is not an omen of what's to come. We made it to the PT boat, got my guys on board, and then we started sailing south. And the idea was to hit Nicaraguan waters after dark and stay out of their international waters for as long as we could. That was a rough ride. It was a lot of swells. I think there was only three of us in that PT boat that did not get sick to the point of vomiting, but everybody else was with their buckets. So it was a rough ride. My mosquitoes didn't bother them. They were seaworthy guys. I've never gotten seasick, but I was pretty close that one time. So we sailed down to outside of Puerto Cabezas. And, of course, the PT boat had radar and everything else that we could see if there was any other vessels coming our way. So about uh, three miles from that shore, I jump in the water. My guys jump in the water. We lower the, the device, put the device in the panga, and... I go through last-minute briefing with the guys because they're not going to be able to speak underwater. So, okay, guy, so what is it you're going to do? I'm going to do tie the right end. What are you going to do? I'm going to tie the left end. You know, well, where are you going to set it? Oh, it's going to be, you know, it's whatever the two-thirds of uh, depth was. And then, of course, don't forget to set the timer. Going through all this and forget to turn the damn thing on, it's not going to be popular. So um, they went in the panga boat to within probably a mile or maybe a little less from shore. And that's when the divers went in the water and took the device in. So for like the mother hen sitting back at the nest that he just sent uh, his fledglings out to do this, it was a very long, probably three hours. But the guys went in like clockwork. They put the bomb exactly where we told them to put it. And then they swam back to the panga boat and then the panga boat back to the PT boat. I had issued them um, these IR lights that they could turn on so we could actually see them with very primitive night vision stuff that we had just come up with. So I could see when they were coming, and it was a huge relief because not only did we have a lot of riding in this mission, but I have, you know, I had lived shoulder to shoulder with these guys now for well over three months. And we were in uh, Honduran waters before daylight. The explosion was set to be after midnight because we wanted to make sure that there was no collateral damage if at all possible. And um, when the explosion occurs, as you know, water is not compressible. So that bounce from the explosion brings up this wall of water that is destructive. It's just like having a tidal wave very concentrated in a 50-yard area. And I would say that the pier, I mean, the pier in Puerto Cabezas is huge. It's several hundred yards long. We took out a section in the middle. So I think it was about two days later, I got back to Puerto Limpida. Immediately there was a plane waiting for me to go back to the capital. And two or three days later, we received from headquarters the satellite overhead of what the pier had become. And the damage was phenomenal. There was this jagged hole about halfway up the pier that was visible from satellite. You're listening to I Spy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale. 
Before the break, Prado's team had managed to sabotage the Nicaraguan port in Puerto Cabezas. The attack energized his CIA bosses at Langley, and they pushed for another ambush. But this one wouldn't go so well. A quick note about terminology. You'll hear Rick Prado refer to the FDN. That was the main faction of the Contras. You'll also hear him refer to FDN Contras as the Spaniards. Okay, back to Prado. So with the success of us blowing up Puerto Cabezas, we were kind of like cause celebre. And shortly thereafter, our headquarters came in and says, can you do the same thing on the West Coast using your divers? The West Coast, the main port is Corinto. And Corinto was their commercial port. This is where all their exports and imports came for the mainland on the west side. And the port is actually separate from the landmass. And there is a bridge, I don't know, a couple hundred yards long, if that, that trucks can unload from the ships and use that bridge to get to the main highways and distribute. So headquarters came up with a plan and said, can your guys take this bridge out? And I said, of course they can. Obviously, we'd need a different kind of explosive charge because now you're cutting pylons. The way the bridge was built, it had these very, very thick columns that anchored it to the ground underwater. And what we were going to do is we had four ladder charges that we were going to put in four different pylons all on the west side of the bridge. That way, it would cause the bridge to fall and it would take them at least a year to rubble that out and rebuild, if not longer. So that was the concept. So I thought that we were going to go out there with my Mosquito divers and my Mosquito boat guys. And they said, no, we need the white Nicaraguans that live primarily on the west side of the country, the FDN side, the Spaniard side, to participate on this. So I immediately raised oppositions. You know, I said, look, that's not going to work. My Mosquito divers trust their boat captains with their lives. They're people that they live in the same village. You know, we end up fighting not only for the cause, but fighting for the guy to the right and the left of you. So having a boat captain that you knew under no circumstances was going to leave you stranded was huge. The animosities between the Spaniards and the Mosquito natives that live in the east side of the country, that mistrust existed at every single level, social, political, and definitely military. They're very different cultures. That relationship has been strained since Columbus set foot in this area here. But headquarters said, politically, we want the credibility to be, you know, that we can say this was a united FDN front that took it out, and not just a Mosquito action, which was obvious. They're the only ones that inhabited that area in the east. So we got two boats from headquarters that were state-of-the-art, quote-unquote. These things were about 24, 26-foot open fishermen with a little center console and two huge engines in the back. It could do 50 miles an hour in the water. It was very powerful. It had a front-mounted gun. I think it was an M60 that we could put up there. And uh, I sent my guys out. And this time now they're going out with two Spaniard per boat, captain and co-captain. So we had two divers on each boat, Mosquito, two boat crew that were Spaniard, and now they're going to Corinto. Everything was fine and dandy. I mean, they deployed from the other side of the Gulf of Fonseca, which is what divides Nicaragua and Honduras. And once they started getting near land, 
they started getting spooked because there were more traffic that we had actually been able to realize there was. Some looked like patrols. So that started getting their angst up quite a bit. You know, the Puerto Cabeza thing, they were able to go in all the way undetected. And now here you're trying to sneak in on two boats that even though they had mufflers and all that other stuff to keep them fairly quiet, you're still a moving object that can be seen on radar. So if there was a patrol boat, there was a possibility that you would get compromised and get compromised with, you know, four or six platter charges, automatic weapons, you know, all kinds of uh, war toys. I mean, you get caught with four platter charges and you're going to be executed after being tortured. I mean, there's no doubt about that from the Sandinistas. So they made it into Corinto, both boats, and they were literally 300 meters from where the bridge was when the Mosquito divers told the Spaniards, are you going to be here for us when we come back? Their concern was that they could not rely on the boat captains to stay in place and have a cover for doing what they were doing if anybody questioned or anything else, that they were just going to hightail, especially that they had these very fast boats that no Sandinista boat was going to be able to catch them. And the answer was yes, but it wasn't a convincing yes. And that ensued an argument. You guys, we can't trust you. You're going to leave us here. Well, you're just chicken. You know, you just don't want to go in the waters. And no, you're chicken. That I know the first thing that happens, you're going to leave us here. And that went back and forth. And you're talking eight guys who are fighters and they have guns. And I was on radio communications with them. I had secure uh, stuff that I could talk to them. So they came back and said, look, you know, we're aboarding. We'll tell you why later, blah, blah. And they started sailing back. So now they started exfiltrating out of the Corinto entry there to the bridge. And these boats were extremely fast, but they were also extremely, it's like, like a Ferrari, you know. Yeah, they're very fast, but the reliability for a machine like that is questionable. And they were putting along, the boats separated on purpose. They wanted to say, hey, let's separate ourselves so we don't make a bigger footprint. You know, if you're looking on radar and you have two boats that are moving smartly in one direction, that could cause attention. So they kind of split up. Well, the boat that was behind developed engine trouble and they had to pull into the mangroves and try to fix the boat. Well, of course, they didn't have the what with to really do that, but they were trying. And at the same time, they're trying to hide in the mangroves because there is maritime traffic going back and forth that caused them to turn everything off, no lights, no radios, no kind of noise. The second boat made it out to, they were still in Nicaraguan waters, but they were near the Gulf of Fonseca, floating in what Sandinistas considered their territory and when their boat just conked out. And they didn't know if it had run out of fuel, if it had, you know. So I went to my base chief, Leon, a super stud of a guy. I said, Leon, I'm not leaving my guys behind. There's no way I'm leaving my guys behind. He says, I knew that was coming. What is your proposal? Well, this is where being a former pararescueman really came in because I knew everything that you needed to do to get people in or out of boats in that scenario. So I asked my pilots, okay, I want the helicopter to take off and these guys would just drag me under the helicopter. It's called a low and slow. A low and slow, the helicopter is moving around 15 knots and you're about 15 feet off the water. And I would jump out of the helicopter into the water and then swim to the boat to try to... Uh, repair it and get it back going. And if that didn't suffice, then we were going to blow the boat right on the water. Because if I have to get my guys out, I am not leaving that boat for the Sandinistas. 
So I gathered a five-gallon container of fuel and another five gallons of water because they said that they had run out of water. Got a toolkit together, spark plugs, and all kinds of wrenches, and two sticks of C4 and a timer. My young pilots, being young pilots, they were excited as hell. They were like, yeah, man, we definitely want to do this. So I asked my pilots, okay, I want you no more than 50 yards from the boat. I don't want to be swimming all morning. And uh, I want you at 15 feet, and I want you at slight movement forward, 15 knots, so I have that momentum when I throw the stuff out and then throw myself out. Lo and behold, I'm telling the guys, I'm, you know, we're, we're on hot mic, and I'm going lower, lower. Well, they were doing probably less than 15 knots, but they were certainly at least 30 or 35 feet off the surface because young pilots, but they're not stupid. And, you know, they're not used to flying and hovering over the water. And as you know, water is not compressible. If you hit it wrong from 35 feet, it's going to leave a boo-boo, you know. So, And the reason we do 15 feet is because there's less chance of you tumbling, beginning to tumble. You have a shorter time to do it correctly. When you go that much higher, if you happen to get in the wrong position, you hit the water in the wrong position, it's going to knock you out. So I stood there in the door. I had my gear on. I had the C4 strapped under my shirt, on my waist, wrapped around with ace bandage. I had a my backup weapon in my ankle. And after I gave up trying to get my pilot to, uh, to get closer to the water, uh, I said, I got to go for it. So that was a hell of a drop. You literally throw the stuff down because we had it so we would float. And then you yourself go out in a specific position, your hands are tight around your waist, your feet are pointed, and you twist, so you, you hit, when you hit the water, you're hitting almost backwards with the momentum. That's why the helicopter has to be moving forward, so you get that backward momentum. The water hits your heels, starts throwing you back, then your butt hits the water, then your head hits the water. That's the way I went out. It was a picture-perfect, with all due modesty, exit and recovery, especially from 35 feet. I had never had a, a longer low and slow than that one, and that's it. I bobbed immediately to the surface. I only went down maybe three or four feet below the surface from the momentum, and uh, I could hear the mosquitoes cheering from the boat. So I swam over, you know, took the water and the tank and everything else, and the explosives put them on board. And lo and behold, what had happened was the spark plus had gotten so fouled up whether they were running too rich or whatever, we don't know, but they were all fouled up. So we were able to replace those, clean those, refuel, and take that boat back, back to the safe haven of our base. The problem for us, though, was we still had another boat stuck in the mangroves. So when we hightailed back to the, uh, the island where we had our secure perimeter there, the boat captains that we had on the ground, one was a Cuban Bay of Pigs veteran, and the other one was an agency maritime officer. And these guys are, I mean, that's all they do. They're boat guys. They're the real guys to do this kind of stuff. And so they went over the boat with a fine-tooth comb, making sure that it would run right and all this other stuff. And we get on the boat and we go back. Now it's the boat captain, his mate, and myself. That was it. And, of course, you know, I'm wearing jeans and a sweatshirt. And they are, they have their slickers, you know, all the way down to their calves with the hats on and they're staying dry because we encountered some very uh, stormy seas. So the boat was just pitching and slamming um, constantly to the point that eventually the impact of the rough waters started disabling our electronics. So it got really, really bad. We lost all our communications. Also, the Sandinistas knew something was going on. 
there were several Sandinista patrols out there, and they started popping flares, trying to see if there was something that they could see. And then several times they did what's called recon by fire, where they'll shoot some rounds into a particular area and stop to see if you get any returning fire. Then you know that that's what it is, and you vector on it and you destroy it. So they did that. We didn't fall for it, mainly because I only had my Browning 9mm and one M16 on board, so I wasn't about to get in a firefight with a bunch of Sandinista PT boats. And we hit one of those waves, and I went ass over tea kettle, banged my head on the, on the boat, and the radio went flying, hit the transom, and busted up. So after a whole night of trying to find and retrieve our, our team under scrutiny from the Sandinistas, obviously we had to abort the mission at that moment. Well, I am wet down to my underwear from all the sea spray. I haven't slept in 36 plus hours. You know, the adrenaline rush of being in those kind of waters, looking for my guys, worrying about my guys. When that adrenaline started wearing off on the way back, I started becoming hypothermic. You know, you have a boat that is doing 30, 40 knots and you're soaked to the bone, you're gonna get hypothermic. Being a, a pararescue medic, I know the symptoms. And when I started shaking, I told the boat captain, I says, I'm, I'm going to go in, in the, uh, you know, you have the open fishermen's have that little cabin that's got a storage area there. So what I did is I got all the life vests out and all that other stuff, took the plastic from the life vest, stuck it in the back of my sweatshirt and another one in the front of my sweatshirt, closed the door and I went in the fetal position because I was shaking like a leaf. And when we, when we got back to the island, the Cuban boat captain puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, I've been at sea for 40 or some years. I have never seen somebody do what you did. And I said, yeah, well, you had your slicker on and you're nice and warm. You know, I says, no, I get it. The very next morning before daylight, now we went out with six piranha boats. These were the smaller, very fast, armored. They got all kinds of guns on them and we had teeth. I mean, we had a bunch of guys with guns. And they ran in formation straight to where the boat was in Nicaraguan waters, grabbed it, towed it, and towed it back out. And uh, it was a sweet mission bringing my guys back like that. I honestly believe that I was wired from childhood to live this kind of life. That has always been in my temperament. You know, being a child of the revolution in Cuba, seeing the violence firsthand, seeing my first firefight when I was seven years old right in front of my face, people getting shot and automatic weapons going off. I had been a street kid growing up. I had a confidence and swagger. And for me, you gotta understand that it was extremely rewarding to live this kind of life. During those three years, I slept in a jungle hammock and not a single day did I wake up and go, oh man, I'm still here. No, I loved it. Rick Prado spent 24 years at the CIA. He recounts his experiences in the book, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. The Reagan administration's covert support for the Contras eventually led to a broad government scandal known as the Iran-Contra Affair. I Spy is a production of Foreign Policy. Our executive editor for podcast is Dan Efron, our team includes Rob Sachs, Laura Rossbrow Tellum, Rosie Julin, and Claudia Tatey. Our show now has a newsletter, and it's absolutely free. 
It includes beautiful illustrations that the artist Guy Shield makes for iSpy, photographs from some of the missions described on the podcast, and other bonus content you won't find anywhere else. To sign up, go to foreignpolicy.com slash iSpyNewsletter. That's foreignpolicy.com slash iSpyNewsletter. iSpy is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in smart news and analysis from around the world, please consider subscribing. iSpy listeners can get a 15% discount by going to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and using the promo code iSpy at checkout. Next week on the show, FBI agent Eric O'Neill lays a trap for a suspected spy, his own boss. It was the first time that the FBI had pulled back the curtain a little bit and showed me the evidence that they had that Hansen was the spy, the greatest spy in U.S. history, the most damaging we'd ever hunted, someone who had gotten away with it for over two decades. And here I was stuck in the room with him. That's next week on I Spy. I'm Margot Martindale.